0: please email us at info at com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12. And we're going to pick up this morning in verse 9 with the Lord's triumphal entry. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture. It's... It's packed with historical details, theological details, and really, I think, pivotal to understanding the basis of the kingdom of Christ. That's a major theme in the, in the Gospels, a major theme of the New Testament, that Jesus is a king and came to establish a kingdom. And you see this in John chapter 12 in, in this Uh, story of the triumphal entry. Remember, Jesus, after the raising of Lazarus, the authorities decided that Jesus needed to die because so many people were believing in him. So Jesus went to a village called Ephraim, probably 16 miles northeast of Jerusalem. But he has come back, and he is coming into Jerusalem, and he is coming in for the purpose of going to the cross, that's why he's coming. Uh, look at verse 27 of chapter 12. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. What's he talking about? He's talking about the crucifixion, this, this hour, why he came. He says, But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So he's coming to the cross. And in this, you see the kingdom of God. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to walk you through the historical details, the geographical details, and at the end, give you some applicational insights on the kingdom of God. So we have a lot to cover, so stay with me on the details. Stay with me. Follow me as we go through the text. We're going to look at the verses. There's a lot in the background here that just on a face value reading you would not get. So let's get through the background, and then we'll talk about the kingdom of God briefly at the end. All right, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, Let me me start in verse 9 with looking at this plot, this plot to kill Lazarus. So Saturday evening, verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So previous night he had been at that party in Bethany with Lazarus, Mary and Martha. Now Sunday morning Jesus is is going into Jerusalem. There is a large crowd and they are interested in Jesus because of this fact that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus at this point has really become somewhat of a spectacle. Do you ever go, they don't really do it so much these days, but you remember uh, back in the day you'd go to the carnival and they would have a tent and they would you know, say you know, some sort of freak of nature is in the tent, you know, and come pay money, you know, your tickets, and see what's, see what's on the other side of this thing. Lazarus has become a walking spectacle because he's come back from the dead. So people are interested in Lazarus for all sorts of superficial reasons, and people hear about this, so now there's, there's a large crowd, there's a fascination, there's a curiosity regarding Lazarus. Verse 10, so the chief priest made plans. you remember the chief priests were the Sadducees? They were the ruling class of Israel, uh, different from the Pharisees, but these individuals made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Uh, if you remember John 11 verse 57, if it's on if it's on the same page in your Bible, you can just look over John uh, verse 57. The chief priests uh, of chapter 11 and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him, and then they would kill him. So they already had plans in place to arrest and kill Jesus, but now they make plans to arrest and kill Lazarus. And the reason is is because Lazarus is a walking miracle. I mean everywhere Lazarus goes, think about the conversations he's having. Whoa, you're you're the guy that that Jesus raised from the dead. It's incontrovertible. You can't debate it. And so Lazarus is causing many people to have some sort of faith in Jesus. Look there at the end of verse 11. On account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, it's not clear what type of faith this is. Is it possible to have some type of mental assent and mental belief in Jesus and it not be saving faith? Yes, it is. You remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So, they're believing in Jesus. It's not clear if that faith is a saving faith or a superficial faith. But regardless, uh, many, many, many are going to Jesus, and on account of Lazarus and the chief priests are not even even considering the fact that Jesus Christ might indeed be the Messiah. Not even considering that reality, they just want Jesus dead and they want Lazarus dead. And that right there is the definition of a fool. A fool, according to the Bible, is not somebody that doesn't know algebra. It's somebody that rejects God. I was thinking this week about how Proverbs, how Solomon defines a a fool, and was was going back to Proverbs chapter 1, you can jot these verses down, but Verse 23, Solomon says, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. But then he says, Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Listen to what God says. I also will laugh at your calamity. That's the fool. I will mock, God says, when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. That right there is a summary of the leaders of Israel. They flat-out refused to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they rejected the knowledge because they were fools. So that's the story behind the plot. Next, you need to understand what's going on with the palm branches, the palms. Look at verse 12. So this is Sunday morning. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, from Bethany. Bethany was about two and a half miles east of Jerusalem, basically a suburb of Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. So it's beginning of Passover week, and John says that there was a large crowd. Probably, Josephus estimates at these Passovers, there would be about two million Jews. So if this is a large crowd, I mean, this could be thousands or tens of thousands of people that are coming out to see jesus so this is a this is a you know maybe a football stadium worth of people that are interested in coming out and they took branches of palm trees to lay before him uh here here's the history lesson behind the palm trees if you don't understand this you won't know what's going on all right so so stay with me right here let me give you some history this is extra biblical, you won't you won't find this in the Bible, but it explains what's going on in terms of the context. Do you remember a guy in your history class named Alexander the Great, sometimes called Alexander of Macedonia? He became king of Macedonia when his father Philip died. As a little boy, his, his mother told him that he was destined to be a world conqueror, a world leader. They paid for him to be trained in Athens by Aristotle. And when he became king as a teenager, uh, he set out and began conquering the known world he conquered Egypt, he then went east, he conquered Babylon, made it all the way to Afghanistan, and then suddenly, and, and really just out of nowhere, died in 323 BC. So he dies in Babylon, and when he dies, there's this vast Greek empire. And what happened then is Alexander had these really competent generals that had helped lead the charge, and they divided this Greek empire into three smaller empires. So the general's names were Antigonus, and he took Asia, Asia Minor, and then later his descendants, uh, Greece and uh, Macedonia. Uh, a guy named Ptolemy, it's spelled P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, if you ever see that in the history books, he went to Egypt and he established, basically took over that section of the Greek Empire. And he also stole Alexander the, the Great's body and took it there to, make, to try and make him the most legitimate of the, uh, of the heirs of Alexander. Okay, there's one other guy, one other general named Seleucid, and he took all of the east. He took all of Babylon, all of Syria, and all of Israel. And that section of the Greek Empire became known as the Seleucid Empire. And they had their own Greek kings over that section of what we call the Holy Land, Syria, and, and all of that. Now one of his descendants was a gentleman by the name of Antiochus the Fourth. He called himself Epiphanes. That, he nicknamed himself. You know you have issues when you're giving yourself nicknames, you know, in the third person, you know, and especially a nickname like this, Epiphanes basically means uh, a son of the gods, uh, the, the enlightened one. That's what he called himself, and he was a Greekophile, and he believed that everyone should practice uh, Greek religions and Greek customs, and so he made it his endeavor to convert the Jews to acknowledge the Greek gods. Let me ask you a question. How do you think that went for him? It didn't go very well. And so he basically started a, and this is why, by the way, the Romans later on were so hesitant about messing with the Jewish religion because of what unfolded. So, so Antiochus IV fourth imposed uh, the worship of the Greek gods on the Jews, Uh, he went into the temple, he slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple. Many think that this is the little horn that Daniel uh, refers to. And then what ensued was a civil war where he killed 80,000 Jews. Now, there was a guerrilla fighter named Matthias, and he said, this has gone on long enough. This has to end. So he started to try to overthrow this entire Seleucid empire. And guess what? He and his sons were relatively successful. He had a son named Judas the Hammer, Maccabees. You've probably heard of him, Judas Maccabeus and his brother, Simon Maccabeus. And they pushed the the Greeks out of the temple and essentially out of Jerusalem in 142 B.C. And that event became commemorated in what's called the Festival of Lights, what we call Hanukkah today. That's what's celebrated, is the overthrow of the Greeks in Jerusalem. Now, when Judas and Simon came back into Jerusalem. They were greeted by the Jews with palm branches. Okay? Now it's coming full circle. So the Jews came out of Jerusalem. They've successfully overthrown the Greeks, and they laid down palm branches for these leaders to come back into Jerusalem. So what was celebrated was the overthrow of a political occupation. So what do you think the Jews are expecting to take place right now? Here's a guy who's raised someone from the dead. He has power over life itself. He is coming into Jerusalem as a king let's lay palm branches before him because he is going to conquer Rome for us. You see what's going on? They are expecting a political revolution. That's what they're expecting. And so they come out, look at the second part of verse 13, and they're crying out, Hosanna. And Hosanna means God save us. They're crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they are expecting this king, this this king, to to coronate and for him with his power to overthrow the Roman authorities. And they're quoting Psalm 118. And, And jot these verses down Psalm 118, verse 25. Psalm 118, 25 says, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so they're saying, we praise you, our Savior. We praise you, our Lord. And of course, they're half right, aren't they? He is their Savior. He is their Lord, and He's come to save them, just not in the way that they expect. Look up at verse twenty-two. If they would have read the earlier part of the psalm; they would have realized this: the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In order for Him to save, He first had to be rejected. He had to be crucified. So Jesus saves not by overthrowing the political authorities, but by dying on a cross. Now, this happened all according to prophecy. So that's the next thing I want you to see. I want you to see the prophecy that is fulfilled in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. These are very important words, just as it is written. Just as it is written. When Jesus came, he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament scriptures. And the scriptures had promised that Jesus would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The other gospel writers tell us how this came about. Uh, Mark, for example, you don't need to turn there. Let me read this to you. This is Mark chapter 11. tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So Jesus, providentially, according to divine orchestration, knows that the colt will be there. In the, order, in the ordination of God, sends the disciples to get the colt. They bring the, the, this colt back to him, and Jesus will ride this donkey into Jerusalem. All in fulfillment of a prophecy given in the prophet Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And that is quoted in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. That's Jerusalem. He says, Behold, your king is co- coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, it's very interesting, I think, and I think we're supposed to be surprised by this reality. I mean, this is a very, it's a very surprising prophecy because you, if you think about it, if man plans this, if you're thinking about the coronation of Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem, what type of uh, steed are you going to pick? You're, you're going to pick the white horse, You're going to pick the great stallion. You're going to pick, uh, you know, a Texas Rangers horse, a big horse. That would scare everybody away. You're not going to pick a donkey. But I think there's two reasons why a donkey is picked and why a donkey is prophesied. And the first is this, and this gives insight into the kingdom, is because Jesus came to establish the kingdom not by might but by establishing peace, man peace with God. Do you remember Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 9? He says he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then what? Prince of Peace. He came to bring peace, for God demonstrates peace his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to establish peace with God for us. And the second reason why he came on a colt or a donkey is because he comes in meekness. This is another aspect of the kingdom it's, it's advanced by peace, but one of the aspects and character qualities of the kingdom of God is meekness, and meekness doesn't mean weakness. Don't confuse the two. Meekness is power constrained. We are all in the kingdom of God called to be meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And Jesus embodies this meekness, and he comes on this cult in a meek Way. God will establish his kingdom through the shame of the cross, through meekness and humility, not through political triumph. Now, John notes, look at verse 16, and this is, this is why I think you know that the Bible's authentic. It tells us the weakness and the lack of understanding of the disciples. His disciples did not understand these things at first. So, you know, people are baffled. Why is he coming in on a donkey? It's not like the disciples are making this connection to Zachariah either. Okay? I mean, Peter's standing there, you know, what's going on here? I have no idea, says Andrew. I, they don't know. They're not making these connections till later uh, when the Holy Spirit helps them remember and recall the things that happened, and then they make these connections Uh, back to the Old Testament. But Jesus knew, Jesus understood that he was fulfilling Old Testament scripture. And this is important to understand because, let me ask you a question, how many messiahs have ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey? One. And in order for you to be a messiah, you have to fulfill all the prophecies. So the way that you know who the messiah is, is, is their fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And this is why it's it's important for you to know the Old Testament. Don't don't just be a New Testament Christian. We are Bible Christians. Because the New Testament, the New Covenant, is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. Jesus said this, John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they which bear witness about me. What Jesus was saying to the Jews, think as a Jew here who has their Torah and their Old Testament, when he comes in on that donkey, he is proclaiming to them that he is their prophetic Messiah. That, that's what's going on here. And in some ways, that raises their culpability, doesn't it? That they are seeing prophecy fulfilled in the person of Christ. Uh, let me read you this quote that I came across this week from A.W. Pink. Real, really profound quote. Think about it. Let me read it. He says, the Lord, therefore, purposely drew the attention of the great crowds to himself by placing himself prominently before the eyes of the nation. What we have here is Christ pressing himself upon the responsibility of the Jews. None could now complain that they knew not who he was. On a former occasion, they had said to him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. But now all ground for ignorance was removed. By fulfilling the prophecies of Jacob, of Daniel, and of Zechariah, the Lord Jesus demonstrated that he was none other than Israel's true king. It was his last public testimony to the nation. You hear that? He was their king. And in fulfillment of the plain declarations of their own scriptures, he here presented himself before them, end quote. So it's all plain. He's not doing these fulfillments in isolation and in secret. They're all out in the open. So that's the the story behind the prophecy, the prophecy and fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. Now let's look at the crowd, the populace. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus, so do you remember there were those that came out to Bethany, and many Jews had observed Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb and had seen him raise him from the dead. These Jews amongst the crowd continued, John says, to bear witness so imagine this sight: all these people laying palm branches before Jesus, and these other Jews are saying, he's the Messiah, he's the one. We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. We really saw him walk out with the grave clothes on. He, this is indeed the Messiah, and they are testifying. It, it's, a, it's a loud tumult. Uh, People are raising their voices. People are shouting, Hosanna. There's so much commotion here. And the thought that they're thinking behind all this is if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, he can surely accomplish a military coup with the Romans. And, And I think this is inferred in the next verse. Look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So there's there's this expectation of a revolution. There's this expectation that Jesus will, will do this mighty work, that he will come into Jerusalem, and that he will clear out the Romans with thunderbolts or something. I don't know. But expectation. Now, What's interesting in the Gospels is what ends up happening to this crowd. What ends up happening to the crowd? So Jesus goes in. What does he do when he comes into Jerusalem? Does he start the revolt? Does he start the coup? Do you remember what he does? He goes and he clears out the temple. Huh. I wasn't expecting that. So it's unmet expectations, unmet expectations, unfulfilled desires. And what that does to the crowd is it causes them to turn on him. It's many of the same people that are now shouting Hosanna that yell to Pontius Pilate, crucify him. Many of the same people because they said you come in and give us what we want. And when he didn't, they said, we don't want you at all. We don't we, we don't want Barabbas. We want him crucified. So they turn on the Lord Jesus Christ. They want Jesus for all the wrong reasons. We've seen that over and over again in the Gospel of John where people come to Jesus because they want something from Jesus. They don't come to Jesus for Jesus. That is very dangerous. That's the prosperity gospel, essentially. I, I want Jesus so that I can get X. They wanted Jesus so that they could get their own political kingdom. Some people today want Jesus so they can get more money, a better business, put, put whatever man desires in the box. But that's not how the kingdom works. Jesus says, you take me for me, or you don't have me at all. So that is the populace. Next, let's look at the Pharisees. What's going on with the Pharisees? Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him now what 's going on here is that apparently there were basically two groups of Pharisees. there was a more radical group who thought that Jesus should have already been arrested and killed and there was a more moderate group who wanted to wait and see who wanted to, well let 's just wait and see maybe he is the Messiah you know maybe he is going to do something let's wait and see and this stricter group of Pharisees. Say, look, you are gaining nothing by waiting. He's not even starting a military coup. He's not removing the Romans. Uh, th- there's nothing gained, and this is, of course, hyperbole. What they say, they say the whole world is going after him. It, it seems like all of the Jews are now believing in him. They're shouting Hosanna. They're they're saying that he's the Messiah. They're they're some of them worshiping him. We know that because in Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke tells us, Luke 19, 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were were silent, if the disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. People were worshiping him. And, of course, the Pharisees opposed the Lord at every step because they were driven by pride, envy, hate. They hated the attention that Jesus was getting, which was taking Uh, their need before the people away, and they were envious of his success. Now some of them, you remember a guy by the name of Nicodemus who came to Jesus in John chapter 3. He was a Pharisee. You remember a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He was the one who took Jesus's body and, and buried it. He was also a Pharisee. So some of them ended up believing in the Lord Jesus Christ coming to faith in Christ, but many refuse to believe uh, amongst the Pharisees. But there's this whole debate uh, internally. They are saying we need to get him now. So they're agreeing with the, the chief priests and the, and the Sadducees that we saw earlier. Now six. Now this is very interesting. Look at verse 20. There's another group here. There's another group in Jerusalem now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These would be um, what we call Jewish proselytes, Gentile god But John says specifically they were Greeks. Let me ask you a question. Where did the Greeks come from? Remember earlier? Uh, the Greeks were there because of the Seleucid Empire. Uh, Syrophoenicia was its own little uh, region next to Israel and lots of Greek people lived there and as they lived there they came to worship Yahweh they were influenced by the Jews and, and rather than worshiping Zeus and Apollo and all the pantheon of Greek gods they came to fear Yahweh And they started to incorporate Judaism into into their faith. And they would go to the temple. And, of course, they couldn't go into the inner courts, but they would worship in what was called the court of the Gentiles. And so these God-fearing Greeks have come to the feast, and they hear about Jesus, and they're intrigued by him. Look at verse 21. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, and this is such a, a great request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. So uh, they come to Philip, probably because Philip spoke Greek as well, and they ask for an audience with Jesus. And this is an interesting note that Alfred Edersheim, he, he was a, a Jewish scholar who, who became a Christian made said in the life of Christ, his his life begins with Gentile worshipers coming with the Magi. And his ministry ends with Gentile worshipers coming to Jerusalem and seeking him. Pretty, pretty interesting bracket there. Because Jesus isn't just the Messiah of the Jew, right? And you're, and you're seeing this even now. He's not just the Messiah of the Jews. What does John the Baptist say? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not It's the Jew and the, the Gentile. So, verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. He doesn't go directly to Jesus. And then it says, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. There's lots of debate about why Philip went to Andrew. Andrew was from Bethsaida of Galilee, a city on the border of Syrophoenicia, where the Greeks lived. So maybe he thought Andrew knew how to better relate to Greek-speaking people, um, but it, it's, it's hard to understand exactly why he went. But he goes to Andrew, and then together, both of them go to Jesus. And they ask Jesus to speak to the Greeks. It's, um, it's not clear if Jesus actually goes and speaks to them. I think he probably did, but it doesn't say in the text if Jesus actually gave them an audience Or if Jesus spoke to his disciples, and then his disciples went and and spoke to these Greeks. But these Greeks are seeking the Lord as a foreshadowing of what was to come. The prophet Haggai prophesied that the desire of the nations shall come to Israel. And And the nations, think about this, since the atonement, since the cross, what has happened in history? What happened in the Acts of the Apostles? The nations have come in. And this is what all the controversy was about at the First Jerusalem Council. I mean, we weren't expecting all these Gentiles to be incorporated into the covenant, were we? This was a surprise. But all of that is foreshadowed here that these Gentiles are coming to seek Jesus. Now, this is, I think probably the most important part of this passage in terms of its theology, and this is the purpose that Jesus gives these Greek speakers for why he came. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, right now is the great shift in my ministry. In the Gospel of John, Jesus has used this phraseology of the hour or the time over and over and over again. And it's always been, my hour is not yet here. And we've come to understand that the hour represents the moment of the passion. It represents the moment that Christ is going to the cross. And he's always said, it's coming, but it's not yet. For example, at Cana, John chapter 2, verse 4, he says, my hour has not yet come, To the woman at the well, John 4.21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. It's not here yet. John 7.30, so they were seeking to arrest him, John says, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20, again, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But now the hour is here. The hour is here of his passion. It's here. And he says, now is the time for me to be glorified. Think about that. Now is the time for him to be glorified. Um, Just a few verses later in, in John 13 Verse 1, it'll say, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world to the end, now this hour is here for him to be glorified. Think about this. What is the glory of God? Remember when Moses was up on the mountain, he said, God, I want to see your glory. God puts him in the cleft of the rock, covers him up, passes by, and as he passes by, God gives his divine name. And in his divine name, God says this, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. And he says, I am a God merciful and gracious. Do you hear that? Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Full of steadfast love. What Jesus is saying here is that the cross is the manifestation of the glory of God. Because God is not just a God of power and judgment. God is also a God of love and mercy. And all of those realities meet on the cross. And that is why there is a glory in the cross, even though it's the most heinous act of history. It's the most important act of history. It's the most important act of history because it's the display of the character of God. Martin Luther said, you don't understand God until you see him at the cross. It it is... The most important display of the character of God. I used to, when I was at Texas AM, I was in the Corps of Cadets, where, man, your freshman year in the Corps of Cadets is absolutely brutal. You know, the sophomores, juniors, uh, it, it is a tough year. And in between classes, I would go to this place called the Memorial Student Center. And I would go to the second floor outside the theater, and I would just kind of hide out and study, hide out from the sophomores so they couldn't bother me and study. And I would sit outside the theater, on a little bench, and, and on the wall, there was a huge mural. It was a timeline of history. And there's all these names and dynasties, and you know you have Egypt and you have Assyria and Babylon and Greece and Rome, all of it, right? But right there, the biggest icon on the whole mural is the cross. And that's absolutely right. It is before Christ, Anno Domini. It, it marks our calendar because it is the, or the, the timeline of history, I should say, because it is the display of the glory of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now is the hour. For me to be glorified, for the glory of God to be on display. Now, this is a remarkable thing that he says, verse 24. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the pivotal juncture, okay? He's coming to Jerusalem. You know, if you're one of his disciples, you're saying, okay, what's next? You know, let's huddle up. What's the next play, Jesus? Tell us what the next play is. Where where do you want us to go? You know, we'll take the the, the west quarter. We'll take the east quarter. What do you want? We're ready. And Jesus says, okay, here's the next play. A grain of wheat's going to die. And unless it dies, there's going to be no fruit. Wait, what? What he's saying here is this. Yeah. He could just take over. He could take take everything over. He has the power. He will do that. But if he did that, guess what? Nobody inherits heaven but him. You understand that? Salvation is by grace in Christ. And the only way for Christ. To build a kingdom with you and me in it, sinners, is by going to the cross. That's the only way for the kingdom to be built. So Jesus says, this is the play that we're going to run. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This, of course, was prophesied again by Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. So Jesus says, look, this is how the kingdom's going to work. I'm going to die. I'm going to be like a grain of wheat. That if you plant a grain of wheat, what happens to the grain of wheat? You have photosynthesis, germination, the wheat plant grows, and then what happens? Lots of other little grains of wheat. Jesus says, that's how the kingdom works. I'm going to die. I'm going to make a substitutionary atonement for sinners. And then in so doing, I will purchase their salvation. So the kingdom will not just be me, but will be all these other justified saints in him. So Jesus then gives a warning to his disciples, to the Greeks. It's really to everyone this is a startling warning, uh, a warning that, that should uh, knock your socks off, a warning that American Christianity needs to heed, uh, a warning that tramples underfoot easy-beliefism. Look at verse 25. I mean, this is startling. Jesus says, this is the type of faith, though, that will be demanded to enter this kingdom. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, this is a Jewish idiom, all right? Hate means to love something so much that all your other loves by degree are hate, that's what it's saying. It's saying you lift up one love so much that all your other predilections and loves and likes are as hate to that one love. And Jesus says that's how the kingdom is, will be entered. You will believe in me, not just intellectually, but you will believe in me in the heart, and you will trust me in the heart, and you will love me in the heart, and you will lose your life for my sake. That is the type of faith that is demanded. It is a faith that looks not to the things that are seen, seen, but to the things that are unseen. To this everlasting and eternal kingdom. Jesus says, look, this is the warning. You have to be be willing to lay it all on the line. To sacrifice your life for me. And I have a feeling that there's a lot of people in the American church that are flying the Christian flag that are nowhere close to that type of faith. Yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. I don't wanna go to hell, but I'm living however I want to. I'm claiming the name of Christ. I'm sowing my wild oats, and I'm not willing to submit to him but I signed a card when I was eight years old so I know I'm going to heaven. Well, guess what? You're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves truly surrenders itself to Christ. It truly trusts Christ. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not just mere intellectualism. It's a trust in the heart. It's a submission to the lordship of Christ. That's what Paul says, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. So it, it's, it's this warning. But then there's a reward, right? This is how the kingdom works. There's always a reward. It's always worth it. It's not just, it's not just a, a service to him that's, that's menial. Look at verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, look at this. This is so wonderful. There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Friend, there is nothing better than to know Christ, than to live with Christ. I've counted all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count them as rubbish, Paul says. There's nothing better than to know Christ, to live with Christ, And he says, if you serve me, he says, on that last day, you know what? The Father will honor you. You will be honored. You will inherit new heavens, new earth. If you come after me, if you follow me, if you lay it down in this life, you will be honored in the next life. Okay. So that right there is the Lord's triumphal entry. Now let me give you just some quick application points for you to think about regarding this kingdom that he is establishing, because I think there's a lot here that we could think about, should think about, and apply. The first is this. The kingdom right now is a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom right now is a spiritual kingdom. Um, Jesus told Pilate, John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So the kingdom right now is a spiritual kingdom. You can't see it. You can't see the kingdom. You can't go build a hospital here in Raleigh and say, well, we've built a little, another little section of the kingdom of God. It's a Christian hospital. It, it doesn't work like that. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and therefore the only way to enter the kingdom is spiritually. That was Jesus' point to Nicodemus. How do you enter the kingdom of God? By being born again. The portal is spiritual. It's not physical. Just because you walk through the doors of this church doesn't mean that you're in the kingdom of God. You must be born again. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. You have to have that new life from above. That new life is what gives you your kingdom citizenship. And that new life is in response to the gospel. Second thing I want you to understand about the kingdom. And there's a tension here. The kingdom is both now and not yet. The kingdom is now and not yet. When Jesus died, he was raised again from the dead. And you remember what happened 40 days later? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he is sitting now at a throne at the right hand of God the Father, where he rules and reigns until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So he's already ruling. He's already reigning. But the war is not completely done. The war is finished when he comes back the second time. So there's a now aspect of the kingdom. Is Jesus keen now? Yes. Is the kingdom fully inaugurated? No. And evangelicals get in trouble when you go too far to either side of that tension. If you say, okay, the kingdom is not yet at all, and some, some evangelicals say that. The kingdom is completely postponed. Those same evangelicals were the same ones that said, you don't need to submit to Jesus as your Lord. Same ones in the lordship debate. They said, no, you just have to, it, it's, it's, it's simply, basically, easy beliefism. His kingdom, his, his, the Sermon on the Mount applies to a future age, they said. No, it doesn't. It applies right now, because he's the king now. Other evangelicals have said the kingdom is already completely realized, and sin and death are completely abolished. And, and these tend to be on the more charismatic end of the spectrum. You know, we, we expect all these sorts of people to now be raised from the dead, that, that death is basically eliminated. We can go into the hospitals, and we can heal anybody. No, you can't, because that aspect of the kingdom, it, it, it was pictured in the ministry of the apostles and Jesus, but we are still under the curse of sin and death, and I don't care how deep your faith is, you are still going to die if Christ tarries, but yet many say, you'll be cured of your cancer if you just have faith. Maybe God will cure you, but maybe not. But, but death will not be completely abolished until Christ returns. It, it's now and not yet. Third, Jesus models that the kingdom is inverted. In other words, it works the complete opposite of the self-help books. <laughs> so the kingdom... In the, in the kingdom, the way up is the way down. The cross comes before the crown. You, you give up your life now for a life in the future. And that's why the, the, the world's wisdom will never understand Christianity. You remember Paul says, my wisdom confounds the wisdom of the Greeks. It blows it out of the water because I have a crucified Lord that says that there is an eternal kingdom that if you give your life for that kingdom, you will inherit all the eternal riches and glory. That confounded the wisdom of the Greeks. It confounded the Greeks to say that the kingdom is by giving up your life, by being meek, by being poor in spirit, by being a servant. It confounds the wisdom of the world to sit down and wash people's feet. But that's what Jesus said. It's the kingdom now is taking up the cross. The kingdom in the future is then receiving the crown. So how are you doing there? How are we doing there? There's no room for pride in the Christian life. It's meekness, it's humility, it's service, it's washing feet. That is the essence of the kingdom now. And those who are the least now, what does Jesus say? Will be great in the kingdom that is to come. If you want to be great in the future, you serve now. You serve now. And then, fourth, Fourth thing is that the cross is the central message of the kingdom. The cross is what establishes this kingdom, and the cross is the means by which the kingdom is entered. Nor is there salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the only way into the eternal kingdom. He's the only way. Way. And therefore, the message of the gospel is the only way that the kingdom advances. At the beginning of the 20th century, people like Walter Rauschenbusch and others said the way that we're going to do the kingdom is we're just going to do acts of mercy ministry. We're going to serve, we're going to do lots of stuff around the city, and we're going to display the kingdom. But that's not how the kingdom advances. The kingdom advances with the proclamation of the cross. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, I I made it my intention to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because the kingdom advances with the proclamation of the gospel. So that's why over and over we're centering our message on the lordship of Jesus Christ on the cross of Christ. Because it's the only way that the kingdom of God advances. Praise be to God. His kingdom is established and he will reign forever and ever and he will come again to, on, on the final day to judge the living and the dead. And guess what? Next time he is coming back on a horse, next time he is coming back to deal with his enemies, and next time he's coming back to the same exact place, to the Mount of Olives, coming in through the eastern gate just like he did 2,000 years ago, to establish his eternal kingdom when he will reign forever and ever. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this kingdom that you came to establish 2,000 years ago, that you did establish. And thank you, Lord, that you grant everyone citizenship in this kingdom who repents of their sins and trusts Christ in faith and We thank you, Lord, for this gift of of the kingdom. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful as your disciples, that we would model what this kingdom is, that we would serve you, that we would take up our crosses daily, that we would follow you, that we would take up the cross before the crown, and that we would look to you for our kingdom inheritance, our unfading crown of glory. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you took it upon yourself to become this grain of wheat that would die in the ground so that you could bear much fruit. We thank you, Lord, for the fruit that is being displayed in our lives and in so many others 2,000 years later. We worship you, Christ. Praise be to God. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at CapitalCommunityChurch.com.